Welcome back to week three of Gang Green and Goudreau right here on percolatedmedia.net. Thank you all very much for listening once again. Before I get into today's show, I just want to give everyone a friendly reminder as to what's coming up around the website. First and foremost, we are nearing the end of our Batman retrospective here. Got a little bit over a month to go before the show concludes. And we got a show coming up for you this week that I think is going to be very contentious and detailed about 2019's Joker. It's a movie that the three of us really have never discussed in private before amongst ourselves through messaging. I personally never wrote a review for it. And in the years that have followed since its release, none of us have really talked about our feelings on any kind of platform. So it made for a great complex discussion. A lot of arguing, as you would expect, and I'm really looking forward to everyone tuning in. It'll drop this Friday on the three men and a retrospective side of our platform. Second thing I want to mention is Garrett and I are working to put a few more shows in the can for our tag team podcasting show about professional wrestling before we launch our first episode. So we're just waiting to find out the details as far as what we're going to be doing to get that show up and running on a consistent basis. And speaking of this show, I can't thank everyone enough. I've gotten surprisingly good feedback from everyone, non-Jet fans, which was really my goal when I said I was going to commit to this on a weekly basis. I'm glad people find this accessible, that I can talk about a team that most of you have A, no interest in, or B, in some cases, don't root for whatsoever. And if you root for us, you root for us to lose and implode. TM, this is specifically directed at you. Falvey, this is directed at you. Hell, anyone who roots for an AFC East team. Regardless, I hate your teams just as much as you hate mine, but thank you for taking the time to listen to me talk. Now, let's get to what's happened over the past week. Because it's been a, a crazy week in the NFL. I feel like we say this every every week, but I like to think that the first quarter of the year first four games or so, that's when you're still trying to figure out what your team actually is. I don't think most have an identity outside of the perennial Super Bowl picks or the sexy powerhouses really know what they are until you get to week five or so. So we're still in that purview of trying to figure out what the Jets are in my case. And we were going into a game coming off, like I said, that miraculous comeback, collapse, whatever you want to call it, against Cleveland. And we were going into a game week three back at MetLife Stadium playing the AFC champion Bengals, who were 0-2 going into this game. And they needed a win in the worst way. But on that note, I want to say that I think it was important for the Jets to both play well and possibly get a win for two reasons. Number one, to back up the idea of forward progress being made on this team. They had to do their part to beat Cleveland, but Robert Sala was very lucky that they won that game because if they had fallen to 0-2 going into this game, I think the voices and the negativity would have been considerably higher. There's an old saying that deodorant, the best form of deodorant in sports is winning, and it definitely masked a lot of the deficiencies that we saw from the Jets in Week 2. And the second one is to show that you can hang with the really good teams. You got blown out by the Ravens. And let's be honest, 
the Browns look like nowhere near the team they were last year. Now, there's the Deshaun Watson nonsense. There's some injuries, but they beat Pittsburgh, who will be playing next week. So I'll talk about that once we get to the preview. But the bottom line is playing the Bengals. You had to show that you belonged and that you could beat a wounded team that had given up 13 sacks in two weeks. Joe Burrow has been the most sacked quarterback through the first two weeks of the NFL. And honestly, I don't think it's even close. So that brings me to the game that I watched on Sunday. And I use the word game lightly because the game ended with the Bengals winning 27 to 12. Now, I want to remind everybody about what my expectations were, not specifically about this game, but the season in general. I was not expecting a Super Bowl. I think that was lunacy. And I was not mandating a playoff run that a lot of Jet fans had. And I understand where they're coming from. This is a team that has not made the playoffs since 2010 and has been a turnstile of an organization as far as management changes and player personnel changes. Consistency is not a word that the Jets are associated with outside of losing. So I get the desperation and the desire and the lack of patience that some Jet fans have. Me personally, I was looking somewhere to where at the end of the season, if they win, let's say, eight, nine games, I look at that as substantial progress coming off a four-win season. You've doubled your win total. And you're, you're... moving things in the right direction. All wins are not created equal, but a W is a W. And those have been hard to come by. Certainly over the last decade, but no more personified than the last few years. I talked about Salah's receipt comments, and as, like I said, I disagreed with his perspective, and that those comments could always come back to bite you if you don't deliver. And I think this was a game where he looked incredibly moronic for his past statements. There's three, I think, warning signs about a coach that may be in over their head. Independent of where you go and independent of of what you're inheriting, because we've seen a lot of first-time head coaches do great. We've seen some flame out miserably and get extinguished pretty darn quick. But I think there's three universal things that you can look at as a fan. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be an analyst to see that there are some red flags that a coach either is in over their head or doesn't know what they're doing. And I think all three of them were on display in this game against Cincinnati. Number one is poor clock management. If you're a Broncos fan, you're seeing this firsthand with Nathaniel Hackett and some of his decision-making. In the case of Sala, this was a critique I had of him last year, is that the, the way he utilizes his timeouts and the method in which he does so are a sign that you are struggling with your adaptability because you only have three timeouts per half. And it, it's... It can mean sometimes the difference between walking away with a W and walking away with an L. And in this game, not that it was the main deciding factor why they lost, but he burned a timeout one minute into the third quarter. That's absolutely not something you want to do because you're already 
starting yourself off in a hole, especially they were down 20 to 9 at the half. And look, I've seen bad clock management. Todd Bowles was notorious for this when he was the Jets coach. So, like I said, this is not exclusive to Sala, but it's a sign that he has yet to adjust to the speed of, of the game at a head coach level. Second sign of a bad coach is undisciplined penalties at inopportune times. Sunday's game was scary on that front because, yes, they happened. But more importantly, it's who committed the penalties that I think are the biggest cause for concern. It's one thing when your rookies are making mistakes. Let's say if Sauce Gardner got flagged for defensive pass interference. He's a rookie. It's only his third game. I can excuse that to a degree because it's part of the expectation. If Jermaine Johnson, their pass rusher, got flagged for roughing the passer or unnecessary roughness, you get upset as a fan because those can be costly penalties. But like I said, it's within the purview of being a rookie. You make mistakes. But the big boneheaded penalties made in this game on Sunday were all committed by veterans. That shows to me that there must be a, a lack of respect or a lack of accountability on the part of the coaching staff. How in the world do you have a player in John Franklin Myers who they threw the bag at to stay on this team in the defensive line rotation? He gets flagged for a blatant roughing the passer call on a play where the Bengals, if that penalty was not committed, would have gone off the field and punted. It was a third and long. Instead, they pick up 15 yards. The drive continues. Dumb penalty. You can't do that stuff if you're a veteran. And Corey Davis got flagged for either unsportsmanlike conduct or unnecessary roughness in the end zone. Not that we saw it, because if you were watching this game, it cut to black on the CBS broadcast feed for about 5-10 minutes. And to be honest, that was the best part of the game, because I didn't have to watch this crap. But Corey, you got to know better, especially against Eli Apple, who is a proverbial punchline amongst secondary players in the NFL. You got to know better. You got to keep your head. And that was killer because the Jets were in the red zone, and they were within a they were about to potentially score a touchdown. They were moving the ball really well in this drive. Instead, they get pushed back 15 yards, and eventually they turn it over on downs. Why I say that falls on the coaching staff, because you're saying, Matt, the players committed these penalties. How's that on the coaching staff? Well, here's how I would respond to that. If I'm the coach and I have someone commit a costly mistake like that, I would either get in their face or bench them for a series. We've seen both of those in a lot of coaches, not just first, not just veteran coaches. Week one, Brian Dable got in Daniel Jones's face and probably said some very harsh comments when he made a crucial mistake in the red zone. I understand it's a different world now, and players are different. But you have to set a standard that you cannot pull this crap and keep your reps. So that's, to me, why it falls on the coaching staff. Because there seems to be an absence of accountability. And the third one, as far as a red flag sign of a bad coach, are lack of adjustments 
and your game planning as you go into the game. I'm no wizard. I've never held a playbook in my life. I've never been on the sideline of an NFL game. But when I look at this as a fan, and I think I'm pretty educated, although I'm a Jets fan, so maybe you take a take a point off my report card for that and mark it as a go from a check to a check minus. But it is what it is. You can't really once you st- once you pick a team, you're stuck with it. That, that's all I'm gonna say. But as a defensive-minded head coach, when you're previewing your game about how you're going to play the Bengals, who, despite their offensive line difficulties, has players you have to account for between Joe Mixon, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, etc. They got guys who know what they're doing. And if you looked at the first two games, the defenses they played, Dallas and Pittsburgh, played a lot of cover two as their, as their scheme. Week one, the Bengals faced it 31% of the time. Week two, 39% of the time. And the evidence showed that it worked because they were able to get consistent pressure on Joe Burrow and forced him to a lot of bad decisions. So what does Robert Sala and defensive coordinator Jeff Albrecht do when you clearly see that there is a blueprint to play this team? They ran cover two, 2% of the time in this game against the Bengals. That, to me, is just counterintuitive and a prime example of stubbornness as a head coach. You you have to adapt. You cannot continue to value your scheme over personnel. And I ranted about this cover three scheme a couple shows ago that I just, I can't stand it. It's, It's way too predictable, and you don't have the personnel like the Legion of Boom to make this work on a consistent basis. He, they're so married to this scheme that it baffles my mind that they continue to do this and watch the results on the field. You would think at some point you'd be, okay, this shit ain't working anymore. We got to make some tweaks. But they failed to do so. So those three things, poor clock management, undisciplined penalties, and lack of adjustments or, or changing your game plan. On defense and offense, which I'll talk about very shortly, those to me are very big question marks against Robert Sala and this coaching staff. I don't think they have shown much of anything that they are the brain trust needed to turn this organization around. But they got 14 weeks to prove me wrong. I'm not saying they're going to get fired at the end of this year, but I honestly don't believe they'll survive another 4-13 season. You have to show substantial progress. If not wins, then something where you're not getting blown off your own field, which seems to be the case all too often at MetLife Stadium. So that's my breakdown of the coaching staff and their their lack of lack of common sense in my estimation. Well, let's go to the offense. It's the second game. This season, they played three games, so it goes to show that the offense with Joe Flacco is still not, it's not in sync. They didn't score a touchdown. They they kicked four field goals. Week one, they didn't score a touchdown until the final two minutes of the game in garbage time. So your two home games, you've 
only scored one touchdown. And that brings me to the game plan. This is what I talk about where the coaches don't seem to know what they're doing. You spent a second round pick on Brees Hall and drafted Michael Carter last year. You got two very good running backs and an offensive line that has some barriers because of injuries, which I'll talk about in a, in a couple minutes. But this offense and this offensive line is not built to stand there and throw the ball 50 times a game. It is built in the trenches. It is built to run the ball north to south. And you can utilize your tight ends to run some stretch routes and jumbo packages. You mean to tell me Brees Hall and Michael Carter had no semblance of a running game? They were used as receivers, primarily because Joe Flacco kept checking the ball down to Brees Hall. He still finished with about seven yards of touch. Which goes to show that these guys, when they get the ball in their hands, they know what they're doing. But I want to see a, more of a commitment to the run game. You can't be throwing the ball every first and ten. Especially when you have a quarterback who has the mobility of a sunglass hut at CVS and an offensive line with more injuries than my 96-year-old grandmother carrying stuff down a flight of stairs. It just does not compute. Your, your personnel does not match what you are committing to. Run the damn ball. Case closed. Because the scary thing is this team is on pace to throw the ball 900 times. Joe Flacco leads the league through three games in pass attempts. Mind you, this is our backup quarterback. And it's not like he's lighting the world on fire. He had a good game last week, but in between that Oreo cookie, our, you know, the cream is good, but those two cookies, they taste like shit. Because he has not played well in week one, and he didn't play well on Sunday. You need some balance. It's the inverse of the Bills, where the Bills are reliant on Josh Allen to a fault and have no kind of a run game, which is why they keep losing these one-score games, these close games, because they don't have a running game outside of Josh Allen that can burn the clock. Maybe they have one in Devin Singletary and just don't use him. Maybe there's some stubbornness on that front. But not to talk about too much teams. I just wanted to bring that as a, as a point of comparison. On the note of the passing game, and I talked about, you know, your, your personnel should be utilized to the to their skill set. You should adjust your skill set to your players, not have a system in place and try to adapt that. It just makes no sense. So with that said, let me go to the big WTF moment in this game. Elijah Moore is a pretty damn good wide receiver. He's quick. He's shifty. He could be a great outside man. He could be a great slot receiver. What have you. Here's what drove me nuts. And, and really just got him in nose. A fourth and five. Why did you throw a jump ball to him? A five foot nine wide receiver. On a fourth and five. Why did you throw him a jump ball? That just is so is so ridiculous and so absurd that it it's almost like they threw their hands up and said, F it. We don't care anymore at this point. 
So that brings me to the offensive line. And I don't know what more... Hindsight's always 20-20. But when I look at what's happened, injuries are a part of the game. You had Mekhi Becton out for the year in the second game of, of second day of training camp, basically. So your your left tackle was gone. Then you bring in Dwayne Brown, veteran, pro bowler, almost never misses a game. He gets injured, he's now on IR. There's a part of me that's like, that's just bad luck. Guys getting hurt like that. Could you have said maybe the Jets should have taken a first-round tackle with one of their three picks? Absolutely. But this team had a lot of holes. And when Sauce Gardner, I mean, he looked okay yesterday. No, he doesn't look like Darrell Revis yet, but it's only his third game. Give him time. I don't think it was a necessity to take an offensive lineman with the first pick. I, I honestly don't. So with that said, my next piece would be they just signed some depth at tackle. But I don't blame Joe Douglas for the injuries and for, for what has transpired. I think there's 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 certain things that are just out of your control. I think he he, he had the right idea. Maybe he should have done it sooner than he did, build some depth, not over-rely on Mekhi Becton, considering he was also coming off an injury that ended his season last year. It's a lesson learned. But lessons, with class now being in session, brings me to the defense. I talked about this at the start. Joe Burrow was sacked 13 times through two games. And a fun fact for everybody. The Jets' defensive line is the most paid, the highest paid unit in the NFL. Not highest paid defense, highest paid single unit. So like a linebacking core, cornerback tandem, an offensive line, a wide receiving core. The Jets' defensive line makes the most money of any singular unit in the NFL. They had no sacks in this game until garbage time. They ended the day with three. But they should have been hitting Joe Burrow a hell of a lot sooner, especially with the amount of money that's being paid on this D-line. So they were outright failing at their job when it seemed like it was set up for them to feast and just beat the shit out of Joe Burrow, and they couldn't do it. They got him outside the pocket and flushed him out. But it'd be nice if the secondary could hold up on their end and somebody could sack the goddamn quarterback when it counts. And this is a pattern we've seen multiple times where the Jets just cannot they can't they can't get to the quarterback until it's too late or they commit a stupid penalty. And speaking of patterns, it is concerning. Majorly concerning that yet again the Bengals get the ball and the Jets defense is on the field first. And they just let them march right up the field and score an opening drive touchdown and you're immediately down seven nothing. I want to know how many times in Robert Sala's tenure that this shit has happened, where the defense just goes right up, the, the defense can't get off the field. On the opening drive, they convert a third and eight, a third and nine, a third and 12 for a touchdown. You can't be doing that stuff and expect your offense to keep bailing you out with a backup quarterback, an offensive line that is not gelling due to injuries and other things you got to play complimentary football. 
And it's made even worse by the fact that Sala's supposed to be a defensive-minded coach. It's supposed to be his area of the field. His area of expertise. And another scary thing is, yet again, I talked about in week one how there was a lot of miscommunications in the secondary that led to Lamar Jackson throwing those deep touchdowns to Dermanet. Saw something very similar in this game, where Jamar Chase, his one big catch, the touchdown, was on a miscommunication between LaMarcus Joyner and Sauce Gardner. The secondary is not on the same page. And LaMarcus Joyner, by the way, also had a stupid penalty on a helmet-to-helmet hit that gave the Bengals an additional 15 yards. It's frustrating to watch. And the only positive I could say is that DJ Reed and Sauce Gardner are two of the top 10 rated corners on Pro Football Focus. They're doing their job. Which makes it all the more infuriating that this defensive line, which is being paid hand over fist, they backed a dump truck full of money to pay these guys. You got one guy on a contract year with Quinn and Williams paying Carl Lawson $15 million a year. And they still can't get the quarterback. It's unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. On the note of special teams, I'll make this quick. Greg Zerline, 4 for 4 on kicks. He's rebounded in a great way since week one, where he missed a PAT and a, and a field goal. He's been the most consistent player. It looks like maybe we finally have a kicker we can stick with for more than one year. But now we get to my favorite part of the, of, of the, of the show. I don't know if you guys hear this. I'm holding up a, a receipt book that I have at my desk. I think I'll make this a weekly segment, where it's, we'll call it... Uh, Sala receipt time or something. Kasala, I got some receipts for you that I want to, I, I want you to explain. He's coached 20 games. If you remember last year, one of their four wins was coached by Ron Middleton because Sala had COVID, I believe. And they won that game. So the 20 games that Sala has coached, his defense, this is what they've allowed. 69% completion percentage. 37 passing touchdowns to only 8 interceptions and a yards per completion of 7.7. So they've been getting torched by the quarterbacks. And a lot of this is because they can't hit the quarterback. And their linebackers don't know what the hell they're doing. Their safeties don't know what they're doing. Jordan Whitehead missed a broken, he had a broken tackle where he had, if he just simply wrapped up instead of playing the hit stick Madden bullshit, would have taken down Tyler Boyd or T. Higgins, but instead breaks the tackle, runs for a 55-yard touchdown. It's just, it's it's the same old Jets. Where they, they're they their own worst enemy. So, so far through three games, they got three sacks, or five sacks, excuse me, and are giving up 27 points per game from our defensive-minded head coach. And like I said, in his 20 wins, the average margin of victory 3.8 points. So they're winning games on average by a field goal. And their 15 losses, you want to know what the margin of defeat is? 16.1. So when they win, they narrowly squeak by. And when they lose, they get their doors blown off. That's on the coach. In a big way. There's only so many times you can blame, oh, we don't have the talent. Oh, we don't have the players in place. 
eventually that 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 well runs dry. And if it, it we're at the point where if that thing was a cow and you were milking it, its goddamn udder would fall off and would shrivel up and die. Got a first round corner in Sauce Gardner, who's playing pretty damn well. Spent a first round pick on Jermaine Johnson this year, which by the way, I am so sick of this defensive rotation. I'm done. And my third and longs, my fourth and longs, I want my best defensive lineman on the field at all times. I don't care about reps. I don't care about everyone getting their play time. I want the best players, the guys who give me the best chance of getting the offense off the field. I want them in on those snaps. I want all of them. But no, Sala's got his system. It's in the system. We rotate guys. There should not be an incident where Sheldon Rankins is playing more snaps than Gwynn Williams or a, a Carl Lawson. It's stupid. It's clearly not working because they're not getting after the quarterback whatsoever. And Salah's comments, continuing on my, you know, handy-dandy receipt pattern, he continues to dig himself deeper and deeper into a hole with his comments. I thought the circus in New York left when Joe Douglas or, or Joe Judge got fired. But every time Robert Sala talks, I swear to God, he was locked in the trunk of the clown car that Joe Judge drove out of town, managed to escape, and kept the circus running. Because, oh my God, his press conference sometime this week, I don't know if it was yesterday or Sunday post game. He said something that really just, I was gobsmacked when he said that he was asked about, you know, some of the miscommunications and he said, well, every team has about six or seven miscommunications a game. So now we're making excuses and justifying losing by comparing ourselves to other teams. Well, we all make mistakes. Number one, that's complete bullshit. Because I guarantee you it's not six or seven a game. But more importantly than that, you can't be making these excuses. You look like an absolute clown. And he said, we've been unlucky on two occasions. There's no such thing as luck dominating an NFL game. There's bad luck and bad juju, or karma, if you want to believe in that sort of thing. Like injuries. I think that is... That's unlucky. Guy tears his ACL in a non-contact injury. Yeah, there, there's there's some semblance of bad luck there. But for God's sake, Sala, hold your players accountable. He said, these veterans aren't trying to make these mistakes, but it happens. I'm tired of his Mr. Rogers bullshit act. Man up. Hold your players accountable and show that you're actually running a tight ship because it looks like the players can do whatever the hell they want. I saw Quinn Williams yelling at a at one of his position coaches on the sideline. I appreciate his passion, but I don't want a guy with one and a half sacks arguing with a rotational defensive line coach or whoever he was arguing with. I want to give Salah the benefit of the doubt. But I have yet to see anything that makes me 100% believe that he's the guy. He's got time to prove it still. I'm not calling for his head right now. 
but my confidence is shaking. If I was the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I'd be closer to the ground than I would be to the air, to the sky. So, that's enough about the game on Sunday. It was every bit as ugly as you would believe, and it was as frustrating to watch as what I saw in week one. Do I feel stupid for saying the Jets had a shot in this game? No. Because the game plan, I thought, was blatantly obvious. And like I said, Saul is very lucky they're not 0-3, because his hot seat would be scorching the backside of his britches if they still lost that game to the Browns, as they rightfully should have to an extent. The Browns still had to be the Browns, but it was shaping up to be another double-digit loss for Sala. But we close out our AFC North gauntlet next week against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Is that Heinz Field or whatever the heck it's called now? It will always be Heinz Field, okay? I'm upset they didn't stick with that. But next week marks the return, hopefully, of the proverbial savior in Zach Wilson. We're getting our starting quarterback back. And let me say this to all the Jet fans. I hope you're listening. Zach Wilson alone, unless he is Patrick Mahomes, will not be enough to overcome the deficiencies we are seeing in the coaching and especially on this defense. He has a hell of a lot more more mobility than Joe Flacco, which is great and sorely needed in this type of offense. But if the O-line, if left tackle, Connor McDermott is a, a turnstile, he could possibly get his ass kicked. And do you really want to see Zach Wilson get injured again? Because if that happens, I think there's a very good chance they draft a quarterback next year. Can't have an injury-prone guy no matter how much upside he has because the biggest ability is availability. And there's going to be a lot of good quarterbacks in next year's draft. You could trade for one. I'm not saying it's going to happen, nor do I want it to happen. I hope Zach Wilson is great. But he's too much of an unknown for me to fully believe that he'll be enough to turn the tide unless Salah and the staff can get their heads out of their ass and their defense can actually stop somebody. And I'm going to say it right now. This will be on the record. What's today? September 27th. If the Jets' defense gets blown out by a Pittsburgh Steelers team led by Mitch Trubisky that is averaging almost just shy of 10 points a game, the roars for Robert Sala to lose his job or at bare minimum take over the defensive play calling, it's going to be louder and more intense than it's ever been. It will be all gas, no breaks. Because that is the ultimate slap in the face if you get blown out by Mitch Trubisky in a Steelers offense that has done nothing through three games. And you're also blessed on the other side because like I said in week one, TJ Watts out for the year. The defensive reigning defensive player of the year is not playing. So that should make life a little bit easier for Zach Wilson. And he's got weapons. Garrett Wilson, once again, in this game against the Bengals, was the best player on offense which is what you want when you draft a receiver 10 overall. But they got to incorporate guys like Elijah Moore and Braxton Berrios into this game plan more. I don't want to keep seeing Braxton Berrios' only touches being on jet sweeps. Use him in the passing game. He's a pretty damn good slot receiver. Roger 
Oh, I was going to say Roger Moore. No, not personally. No, he does not play for the Jets. I want to see Elijah Moore be a focal point of this offense. Move him around the field. Give him more targets. Don't throw him jump balls because he's only like five foot nine. It's just, it's common sense, Salah and Mr. LaFleur. It's about time you used it. Run the ball more. I know it's not the easiest thing in the world to do against the Steelers because they got some pretty good defensive linemen, but you, you got to be more balanced, especially with Zach coming back. He hasn't played since preseason. He only played a drive and a couple plays until he got hurt. You want to ease him back in as best you can. So please, keep it simple. Keep it tethered. And Jet fans, please tamper your expectations. But be warned. If the Jets blow this game and get bulldozed by this Steeler offense, I think Salah is going to be in for a world of hurt. And he has not done the best when it comes to talking to the media, because New York is pretty relentless. It's going to get a hell of a lot worse if they just get, if it's as ugly as it very well could be. So I, I think the Steelers are going to win. I just think Zach is too much of an unknown. I don't know I'm getting out of this offensive line, and I think this defense is going to crap to bed again. Until I see otherwise, I have no reason to instill any confidence in this in this coaching staff and this defense. And if Robert Sala actually cared, I think he would take the play calling away from Albrecht and say, this is not working, I'm taking over. Because look at some of the other big coaches in the NFL that have a specialty towards one side of the ball. Sean McVay runs and calls the plays for the Rams. That's one big example. If you're if you're really committed to one side of the ball, you want to be the, the main signal caller and have your voice be heard. I don't think that's going to happen, but it probably will have to if this is the trajectory we keep seeing. So that's my thoughts on Jets, Bengals, my thoughts on next week's game. Do I think they're going to win? Like I said, no. But I hope, should say I pray, that Zach Wilson comes out of this game unhurt and he has a good game. Because the rest of this year, it's about two things. It's about this defense actually getting their heads out of their ass and doing something. And answering the question if Zach Wilson is the quarterback or not. If he is, then great. We may finally have our guy that we can ride with for years to come. But if not, I think they go back to square one. Because I do believe Joe Douglas, Robert Sala, this regime will ultimately tethered by the be tethered by the anchor that is Zach Wilson. He can't take a quarterback number two overall. And he turns out to be a bust and expect to keep your job. No matter how good of a draft scout you are, if Sauce Gardner turns out to be Darrell Rivas, if Jermaine Johnson is the reincarnation of John Abraham, a lot of that doesn't matter if you don't have a guy under center. Because how many teams have we seen where it's always, oh, we're just a quarterback away? If you're a Broncos fan, you're really a quarterback away? Look at the Colts. Oh, they got Matt Ryan, former MVP. Are they really one quarterback away from being a serious contender? 
the NFL has changed a lot in the last five years. Your best players can't be a linebacker and a guard. They got to be your quarterback, your wide receiver, your edge rusher, your corner, and your left tackle. Those have to be like your five best players. And Garrett Wilson is really emerging as that number one receiver. That's awesome to see. I love it. Left tackle is still a mystery. Quarterback is still a mystery. Sauce continues to develop. We will see. There's still a lot of unknowns. Biggest ones being the coach and the quarterback. And to quote Shawshank Redemption, hope is a dangerous thing. But this team's really got to give fans some hope because I don't know how ugly things are going to get, but they got a hell of a lot worse if they just get embarrassed by the Steelers. So thank you all very much for listening. Hope you enjoy my conversations and my dissertations about my Jets. Be sure to stick along with Percolated Media for the weeks to come. Thank you all very much for listening. Be sure to like us on Facebook, shoot us a message if there's any stuff you want us to talk about. We'd love to do some more shows. We're always looking for new content. Granted, my availability is somewhat limited nowadays, given my situation. But I'll always make the time because I love podcasting and I find this to be a lot of fun. I find it to be cathartic in the case of the Jets. But thank you all very much for listening. And this is Goudreau signing off. You will be landing from your jet lag in about 15 minutes. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.